Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Rays play their first spring training game Saturday against the Red Sox in Fort Myers, then they host the Yankees Sunday in Port Charlotte. How will some of the moves in the offseason with the additions of Jose Martinez, Yossi Susuko, and Hunter Renfro, Xavier Edwards, and Manuel Margot work out? And how will the bullpen shake down, especially with the loss of closer Emilio Pagan? And how soon may we see the number one prospect in baseball, infielder Wander Franco? We'll ask Neil Solans, the Rays pre- and post-game host, who also hosts the Inside the Rays and Countdown to Opening Day podcast, on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. Steve, before we get to Neil, NFL owners have passed a proposal and voted to ratify changes to their playoff format and add a 17-game schedule. Yeah, it would also come with a shortened preseason and some changes to the drug policy and player discipline. Now, according to Adam Schefter and others, not all the owners did vote for it, but it did pass. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen previous reports that the player's share of revenue would go up from 47 to 48 percent. And if the 17 yeah. game schedule comes, then it goes to 48 and a half percent. Um, so the 17 game schedule, I believe doesn't have to start right away, but it would be included in this. This would be a 10 year labor deal. Um, so which the NFL is hoping that, Hey, we want labor peace now. Um, they're still sure. a year away from the deal expiring. So it's not like anything has to happen right now for this. Um, mm-hmm. So now you've got others like Andrew Brandt and others going, why would the players ratify this 13 months ahead of time? Why do the owners want this so bad? Yeah. Well, I, I'm just assuming that uh, they would like to have it done before they negotiate all those new TV contracts, which is also many of those are due to expire in a year. So that's that's just my guess. You know, an extra playoff team as well as, um, you know, so you'd have like three playoff games on Saturday, three playoff games on Sunday, two teams with buys. Um, and then, of course, the 17-week season, uh, which is going to obviously add some wear and tear. So that's that's the you know the the reason for the additional share of the revenue. But you're right. I mean, they they have a year. They don't they don't have to rush to ratify this necessarily. Um, I'm okay with. I mean, I'm okay. First of all, you know, 17 games. I don't play the game, so I can't tell you you know what's that's that's going to cost a player in terms of his overall career. Because if if you're playing you know, potentially an extra, you know, more teams will be playing pre postseason games now um, and a 17 game regular season schedule. Of course, you know, you don't have four games in the preseason, although they don't really play that much if you're a starter in the league in the preseason anyway. So over the course of a career, which only lasts usually less than four seasons, um, that's that's an additional number of games. Um, so there, there might be some concern there. Uh, I, I, I would I, I be think... concerned if I have a contract for three more years with the team. Mm-hmm. For ten million dollars, whatever it is a year, doesn't matter. Right, right. That I sign that going into a sixteen-game schedule. Does my contract go up now? Well, by one sixteenth. Yeah, pres- presumably there'll be more money right uh, mm-hmm. added to the players, so that that percentage needs to somehow. Well, be yeah, the salary in. cap would go up, but does my contract that I agreed to last year player. for four right. years is that right. going to go up because now there's four more games in those four years that I still have left yeah. on my deal or whatever it is. Yeah, you're asking all the right questions that will have to be asked when the union decides whether they want to ratify this or not. Um, you know, based on this playoff format last year, 
uh, the the Pittsburgh Steelers would have mm-hmm. would have made the playoffs. The Steelers right? would have played the uh, the Chiefs in the in the mm-hmm. first round, and the Packers would have hosted the Rams. How about that? Yeah, so that that's pretty interesting. There hasn't been uh, really much change to the to the playoff uh, format since they they expanded to twelve teams in nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering, you know, what are the odds of of um, you know making it to the Super Bowl? There's been, there's been fifty eight number six seeds in the postseason since then. Only six have advanced to their respective conference championship games, including the Titans uh, this past year. And mm-hmm. then two have made it to the Super Bowl. Of course, the Steelers uh, were one of those, and they they won um, one of the Super Bowls. And, and then the that was Packers. 05, I believe it was. That was the uh, 05 Steelers. They knocked right. out mm-hmm. Carson Palmer the second play of the game mm-hmm. for the Bengals, who were the one seed. That's right. And yeah, ended up memory. winning that game. Bengals actually took a lead to the half, but couldn't hold it in the second half. They lost uh, Carson Palmer and Chris Henry on the same play. It was a, it was like a forty or fifty yard pass down the sideline, and both mm. of them lost for the game on the same play. So, the other time, the two thousand and ten Packers beat the Steelers uh, in the Super Bowl, and that, uh, you know, so maybe maybe they did this just for the Steelers. I don't know. They've taken advantage of it twice um, <laughs> and made it to the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah, I mean, for you know, if you're sitting here in Tampa Bay and you haven't made the postseason in 12 years, and your team goes out there and say they win 10 games next year and and, and wouldn't have qualified, I mean, it's just another chance to get to the tournament, right? So everybody wants to see their team in there, and of course, this is about money. And I think that the four preseason games are too many anyway. I mean, nobody plays in the final game. Um, players have always said, and, and coaches too, for that matter, that. You know they need the preseason games to to evaluate some of the new players. Yeah, the starters, uh, the preseason's way too long, and why they even? Yeah. I mean, you know, if if I'm, you know, I, I don't know if I was the NFL, it'd almost be don't even play your starters till game three and four, right? Instead, right. but it's the younger guys, the guys that you want to give a shot and see what they got, mm-hmm. and, and how you're going to fill your practice squads, and and who you're keeping an eye on for the future. So do you have injuries, which you have every year? Um, right. You know, I don't know if the preseason's too long. I, I think. The quality of some of the games are pretty poor, but mm-hmm. that's not the purpose of the preseason. The purpose of the preseason is to get ready for the season, but for coaches, and that is also to see what these younger players or new players to team have for you, or mm-hmm. may or may not have. Well, I mean, labor peace is always a good thing in any sports league. This would be a 10-year deal, so they wouldn't have to deal with it for a while. This would be Roger Goodell's, you presumably, maybe his, his last uh, deal that he would do with the players union and and there's also uh supposedly some changes to as well to the drug policy and the system of uh how they do player discipline i guess yeah i haven't seen all the details on it but i would assume mm-hmm. um some of the discipline would be roger goodell's no longer judge jury and executioner sure um that's yeah. you know it's always been a big sticking point with the players um, it has and the drug policies uh, i i don't know what that would be um, You'd have to assume that they're going to do something with marijuana. Uh, much you know, the NBA doesn't test for it. It's possible mm-hmm. maybe they they won't test for it, um, but there'll be. You would think there'd be some maybe some changes to, to the punishments depending on the mm-hmm. circumstances or whatever. Sure, sure. But now it's up to the players' reps. So there's 32 player reps that have to vote on this. If two thirds right. of them say yes to it, then it goes to a vote of the players, which at that point just needs a simple majority plus one. Yeah, I just wonder how players will ultimately feel about these seventeen games. If if there's enough money, um, you know, for them to uh, to consider that. Yeah, I mean, I, key, I guess right? you know the key, the key is is you know, and, and the, here's the thing: you don't know how much money it is. 
mm-hmm. um, simply for the fact of, okay, two more playoff games and an extra, presumably at least an extra week, if not two weeks of the regular season, depending mm-hmm. on if they're going to go to two by weeks or just one. Right. You know, how much more money that brings out of new TV deals when they're up? Right. I mean, you know, you can guess what new contracts are going to bring with, you know, for two extra playoff games in, in an extra week or two of the season, but you don't know that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, you know, I, you're guessing how much money it is, and, and then you, obviously you split it. You're getting 48 or 48.5% of that revenue split among the players towards the salary I guess that was, that was the breakthrough. According to my sources, according to, to Adam Schefter and reading about this, is that um, that the CBA proposal, um, which, you know, ramps up the portion of league revenues, it goes to the players, from like you mentioned earlier, from 47 to 48.5%. Um, that was sort of represented the breakthrough. Um, you know, I guess they got to a number that they they felt they were they could sell to the players that they thought that would um, that might be enough to um, to have them agree to it. We'll see. I mean, you know, uh, it's hard to get it's hard to get uh, thirty two guys union reps to agree on anything, much less the seventeen hundred players to to go ahead and ratify it. But um, it's good that they're talking now. Now, here's the implication: uh, if this were to get done before free agency, uh, and it affects the Bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you don't have, when you're in your final year of a CBA, uh, each team has uh, the use of both the transition and the franchise tag if they haven't already tagged somebody. Um, and if they get this ratified, uh, and they and they know what the deal is going to be, and this isn't the final year, then they would just go back to a franchise or a transition tag. So mm-hmm. when you're sitting here with Shaq Barrett and also Jameis Winston, not sure what to do with him. Um, you know, it's, it, it would be nice, uh, just from a organizational standpoint, at least this one to, to have the use of both those tags potentially. Now, uh, another thing that's, you got to keep in mind, and, and this is something I've thought about lately because, you know, we said that the franchise, uh, I think the franchise player tag deadline is like March 10th. And then like uh, a week later, March 16th through 18th is the legal tampering period for free agency. Um, if you don't, tag a player with a franchise or transition tag, uh, they become a free agent. And let, let's say, like some people were suggesting that, you know, maybe the Bucks use a transition player tag on Winston, um, thereby making it maybe two, two, three million dollars less money than the 27 million or so he would get as a franchise player in exchange for him being able to go talk to other teams and he could actually sign an offer sheet with another team. And that team could make the offer so prohibitive that the Bucks go, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, well, if they did that, if they put a transition tag on them, they would have right of first refusal. But if they lost the player for their own reasons or what have you, uh, they get no draft pick compensation. However, if they let Jameis Winston or any or, you know any player go into free agency and he signs with another team, that will be considered uh, you know when they when they have the compensatory picks, um, you could get a draft pick if he leaves as a free agent. Isn't that interesting? So. Would you be willing, if you're the Bucks, to say, "Yeah, you know, we don't want to give you the franchise tag. We could, we could give you the transition tag, but if, if if you go and get this big deal that you think is out there for you, and we don't match, we get nothing." Tell you what, how about you go into free agency? We go into free agency, and we all figure this out. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the fr- the transition tag is, if you give that to Jameis, you're banking on he's back with you, right? If he doesn't get a deal right away in free agency. Mm-hmm. Waits a week or two, and then you, he ends up taking another deal. Then what do you do at quarterback? Right. 
You know, it's it's that we talked about Tom Brady and the needle that the Patriots are trying to thread is we want to keep Tom right. Brady. He wants more weapons. Mm-hmm. We can't get weapons to come it's here without to get, Tom Brady. Hard to get but the we, weapons unless Tom's we know not we have signing Tom Brady, until we yeah. get weapons. So there, there's a, a tight window <laughs> they're trying to. And, and the transition tag causes you the same issues with that because there's a chance that you lose him. And if you're you signing a transition him, yeah. tag, you're not going after trying to sign other quarterbacks because you can't because you, you're not going to have two quarterbacks making thirty million. A you year. have right of first refusal, and teams know right. your salary cap situation. And they're going to try to use that against you and, and give it a poison pill, mm-hmm. some kind of some kind yep. of contract that you won't match. Or, um, you know, again, uh, there, there's nothing. It would be sort of a wink, nod, trust, trust me kind of thing. That's why I think, and I'm going to the NFL uh, um, scouting combine this this next week, uh, going up there on Tuesday. Uh, I'll be up there Monday night, but uh, Tuesday, both Jason Light and Bruce Arians talking. I don't expect them to give us much much insight, but up there in Indianapolis, this is the week I think you will see a lot of decisions being made. Um, you will see what the Patriots want to do in Tom Brady. You'll probably hear, um, you know, where Philip Rivers might be leaning. You might hear where, you know, Teddy Bridgewater is leaning. You might definitely hear uh, whether the Bucks feel they, that they have a chance at re-signing Shaq Barrett or will they have to use a tag on him. I mean, all those discussions with free agents and, and, and agents of those players are going to happen, you know, next week. So I think there's going to be a lot of, understanding even before you get to the to the tag period um what teams are going to do and teams will in fact decide you know if they can't reach an agreement you know say they wanted Jameis back but that was going to be you know one year in a club option or something like that and he said no um and they said well you know we don't like anybody else in the field we're gonna we're gonna make sure we have our quarterback we're gonna tag him that might tumble out this week this next week too even though we're not to the deadline so I think a lot of decisions are going to be made but that's to the point of this CBA, if this thing is ratified uh, before the start of the new league year, and in fact this will not be the last year under uh, the current under the, uh, under a CBA, then they they lose one of those tags. So they may only have just the franchise or just the transition, depending on which one they use. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, Neil Solons joins us now uh, down from Port Charlotte. And, Neil, it's only been a few days in camp. Of course, there's been a lot of changes that we'll talk about. Certainly the, the core of the team is there. Um, give us a sense of the energy of this ball club. I mean, they won 96 games in the regular season. Of course, the wild card and, and uh, took the Astros to five games in the ALDS. So, uh, you know, you, you saw players like Willie Adamas and other guys light up. I mean, how much will the taste of the postseason of the playoffs, what they accomplish uh, kind of give them a little little momentum going into this year. I, I certainly hope so, and I definitely get the vibe or the feel that you know, assuming this group is healthy to start the season, that there can be some carryover this year. Um, I definitely think that there were several players who came in in either significantly better shape or extremely motivated going into the year, in large part because they got that taste of the playoffs, and now that mm-hmm. they got that, they want to take it a step further and. You know, I think the other thing, Rick, that stands out to me is, you know, from a lot of people, whether it's front office, whether it's um, ownership, whether it's players, whether it's coaches, 
you know, a lot of them feel that last year was hopefully the beginning of, you know, a kind of window, perhaps like what the race had from 2008 to 2013. Yeah, it kind of feels like that for sure. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, of course, they never sit still, right? There's always going to be changes every no. year. This isn't, isn't the exact same team, to say the least, uh, that they ended the season with last year. And, you know, you, you lose a guy like Tommy Pham, who, who had brought a lot of energy and, and certainly uh, production to the team. He goes to the Padres, but they, they get Hunter Renfro, a guy that hit 33 home runs. Also, uh, you'll know a little bit about Xavier Edwards, who they like a lot as a prospect. So let's start there uh, with, with Renfro uh, and maybe a little bit about Edwards. What, what do you think uh, the additions will, will be for them? Sure. You know, and I, in essence, I try and look at the, the offseason in total and, and look at, okay, who did you lose and who did you end up with? And I think generally, and we can discuss this more later, I think it's a net positive in terms of the, you know, the Padres trade. Obviously, there was a loss in the media term because Tommy did mean so much to the lineup. But, you know, that said, I think what they added was a guy in the now and Hunter Renfro who did hit 33 homers last year, even though he was hurt, you know, a good part of the second half and mm-hmm. was one of the best defenders in baseball in terms of outfield play last year. Um, and has an incredibly strong throwing arm that you know, now you add him to KK and Manuel Margot and think of, hey, if you have those three outfielders late innings with a one-run lead, that mm. can mean a whole lot to you. And, you know, I, especially with the pitching staff the Rays has. And, and, and then I think really the key piece to the deal was Xavier Edwards. I, I think the Rays really feel in the next year or two that he could be a premier top-of-the-order type guy for them who can switch hit, who could play multiple positions, um, who has tremendous speed and ability to put the ball in play. And, you know, knowing the Rays' farm system, not only are they ranked number one by most, but they've accumulated more switch hitters, I think, at one time than they've ever had in their organization, all of whom are athletic, fast, can defend. And I think, you know, that's why I really think this is the beginning of a window, not, you know, not the middle or the end portion. All right, a lot of young players and, of course, the speed in the outfield you mentioned. I mean, to get... Margot, uh, a little surprising, maybe to some. They give up uh, their closer, Emilio Pagan, who, who settled in that role uh, later in the season. But, you know, 20 saves uh, really settled that bullpen down in the late innings. And, um, you know, when you, when you talk about Margot, I mean, he does. He sounds a lot like Kevin Kiermaier uh, in a way. So uh, the, how does this set up the outfield? Is it just, just the way you said there? Well, you know, I, I look at Margot in a lot of ways. I look at him as a guy who's probably going to play against lefties, probably a similar role, but certainly much more skilled than Guillermo Heredia as a defender and as a base stealer. You know, Margot was 20 of 24 stealing bases last year. Um, and then to me, there's the fact that while I don't know that he'll be an everyday player with the Rays, um, unless he plays that well, um, the Rays do believe at 25, there's a lot of upside and I think something that's important to note, um, you know, as much as it would be great if Kevin Kiermeyer starts and plays 150 games this year, um, mm-hmm. last year was the first time since 2015 and they started more than 105 due to injury. And, yeah. and I think in all of that stretch, the Rays have their best option if there's an injury since KK has been an everyday player in Margot. So I think that's incredibly important. You know, on the other side of this, certainly losing Emilio Pagan, I don't think it's lost. But I also think that there's probably a little more comfort level bringing Jose Alvarado's parents here, um, mm-hmm. you know, from Venezuela to be with him. The smile on his face, the comfort level he seems to have, the fact that he's throwing strikes again, I think is a huge positive. 
And then it, it's not like the rest of the bullpen isn't deep. You look at what Diego Castillo did last year, especially second half. Um, yeah. What Nick Anderson did after the trade, uh, Oliver Drake and how good he was down the stretch. Colin Poche and the Rays, I think, have high hopes for Peter Fairbanks. And Chaz Rowe is a really good veteran in that in that bullpen in terms of the role he plays. You know, I do think that there probably was, they felt a little more depth. Remember last year, we were talking at the beginning of the year, who's going to be in the bullpen? And nobody even remembered, you know, Emilio's name was talked about. But I don't know if people said, oh, this is going to be the guy who's going to nail things down for you. Uh, at the end, I think if he was a good third or fourth reliever, the Rays would have been happy. And look, you're able to acquire some pieces that I think are going to certainly uh, really have a you know potential impact on your ball club in the now. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's obviously a lot of hope for Alvarado. I mean, he has you know electric stuff, and and certainly you know started out well, pitched the ninth inning a lot early in the season uh, before the injuries before he had to uh, to take a leave of absence. But you, but I mean, you've also all those guys you mentioned. Neil, they can pitch the they can get the twenty seventh out too. I mean, we've seen we've yes. seen great stuff from Nick Anderson, Diego Castillo. I mean, they have a number of guys that can get the last out if they want to go that way. I, I think so, and and I think that um, another term that I, I I've heard a lot over the last you know several weeks leading up to spring training and then during this first week full week of spring training is selfless, and that the guys in that bullpen yeah. are selfless. Um, mm-hmm. You know that they all don't care. Who gets the last out? They care about winning. And, you know, I remember, you know, dating back to Joe Madden, he used to talk about the five stages of a of major league baseball player. And, you know, stage one was happy to be here. And stage two was survival mode. And stage three was believe you belong. Four was, you know, get as much money as you can. And five is all you want to do is win. And he said, if I have all my players in stage three and five, or at least the vast majority, believe you belong. And all I want to do is win you're going to have a success. And and while I don't know that Kevin Cash has gone out with that whole thought process in mind, certainly the way that the clubhouse culture is formed is very, very reminiscent of that. And you hear guys, all they do is care about not when they take the ball, but that they take the ball in a position where they can help the team. Look, it's one thing for the Rays who have always you know been on top of the analytics and matchups and things like that, right? But... I mean, I think you got to credit Kevin Cash and to some degree Kyle Snyder mm-hmm. for those, you know, for for making these guys or allowing these guys or helping these guys buy into what you just said—that selfless attitude. No doubt, um, you know, and I think Stan Borowski should get some credit too because you know mm-hmm. he's he's now the longest tenured bullpen coach the franchise has had, um, and he really has done a masterful job with the fact that these guys have had to adapt on the fly. I mean, when Stan came, there was no there was no uh, opener. Form or, you know, you're going to be in this kind of role or that kind of role. It's kind of, you know, changed and adapted as time has gone on. And I think he's been receptive to giving these guys new ideas and new thoughts. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of the way these guys have been so selfless, I think it really goes back to Sergio Romo a, a couple of years ago when he bought into doing the opener. You know, yeah. I, I think that has trickled down to the fact that it kind of helped create that culture where now mm-hmm. it's everybody says all right let's pull the same rope all we we want we won last year we won the year before we've won 90 and 96 games the last two years we got into the playoffs we want to take a step further the only way to do that is to buy into what you know the coaching staff and and the rest of the players all buy into as well Neil if we're talking about pitching last year at this time the bullpen was the thing that everybody was kind of wondering about how it would all come come together and, and of course it has um, but if these starters are healthy, we know who won two and three, and then maybe even four. 
Talk about what they can throw out there, um, you know, in a five-man, even go six deep if they have to. Yeah, it's really unique in the fact that, you know, when the race went to the opener strategy, a lot of it was to protect guys because of all the injuries. I mean, you go back to the year where the race had Chris Archer injured. Um, and, you know, uh, if I remember right, there was a year where Alex Cobb was injured. You know, you had Brent Honeywell, who you thought was going to be part of your rotation. He was injured. Um, they had several guys get hurt in a period of time. Uh, when they had Nathan Ovaldi, he got hurt. And, and they were forced to uh, kind of force feed some guys. And I think that's where the whole opener strategy kind of evolved is they didn't want to go to their eighth and ninth guys, maybe in, in necessarily in terms of the depth chart and put them up two, three times in, you know, a, a, through the order against the likes of the Red Sox and the Yankees lineup. And the thought was, OK, well, if they start with the bottom third of the order, it's at least better than having to face, you know, Judge Stanton and, and whomever else was at the top or Betts and, and et cetera and so on. So, you know, they, they try to make it easier and build confidence. And, you know, I think it's allowed guys like Yanni Chirinos and Ryan Yarbrough, who are considered your quote-unquote back-end starters, to really grow. Um, but what's special about them is is they all have a tremendous contrast to guys who throw really hard um, in in Blake Snell and Tyler Glass now, and obviously the veteran in Charlie Morton, um, but also have such a variety of different looks. And I, and I think day-to-day... Um, there's a belief that when any of those five guys are on the mound, that you have a really good chance to win. And then, you know, there's also, um, you know, Brendan McKay sitting there, um, you know, hopefully further developing this year, his off speed stuff to the point where, um, now you have, you know, uh, continued options. And, and if someone is to get hurt, which look, this team had what 33 pitchers and 57 players last year and still won 96 games. And, you know, I don't know that they'll need that many this year. But they're certainly gonna not going to go a full season without injury, for sure. No doubt. And, and, I mean, those guys have such electric stuff. It's nice to have a catcher back two years in a row now that knows these guys, right? It does. I, I think it's going to help Mike Zanino a lot in terms of the offensive end. Look, I, I don't expect Mike to be, you know, um, a Silver Slugger award winner at the plate. Sure. Um, but I do think it, it helps him that he knows this pitching staff and instead of last year where he's trying to force feed himself and learn all the pitchers and make sure he has a really good feel for all of them that he has a built-in relationship with each of them and he can certainly go out and and have confidence that he knows what they have and what they're capable of and he can also worry about improving himself offensively and maybe maybe he can spend a you know a little more time in the cage or a little more time with Chad Mottola which hopefully allows him to relax his mind and, and have a better season offensively than he did last year. And certainly they'll miss the bat and even the defense of Travis Darno did just an unbelievable job when they had all those injuries, but uh, you're happy for him to see, to see where he winds up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got, uh, we, we talked a little bit about the outfield and, and there's a guy who's going to provide a big right-handed bat um, again in a trade. I mean, Jose Martinez is an interesting player. Um, I'm not, I mean, I guess I guess he's a DH. Uh, he can can he play? Uh, and he's an outfielder. I mean, where, where, how do you do you see him sort of in a platoon type role in in some instances? I I do. I see him as a late inning guy too, who can pinch hit mm-hmm. and come off the bench because he's got you know really good bat speed and a short enough swing. And you know, when you look at this division and the Aroldis Chapmans and the Zach Brittens of the world with New York and just some of the balance that some of the teams have from a bullpen standpoint. It will be nice to have a weapon like that coming off uh, coming off the bench. 
Um, and then I see him DHing and they're working him hard at first base. And, you know, I, I think in my mind, because he has, he's a pretty good athlete and, and tall, I, I think he presents a good target. And Rodney Linares did such a good job with G-Man Choi. Did such a good job with Willie Adamas and developing him that, you know, I, I think I've, I'm hopeful that he can make Jose a better first baseman so that he can play first base in DH. Um, and, and I think more than that, I think he's going to help Rick in a leadership role. Um, Mm. you know, when I talked to people in St. Louis, they raved about what a great clubhouse guy he he was. And Mm. I can tell you that he has been nothing but a positive from everyone I've spoken to, you know, the first stretch here, he came down early. I mean, this is a really, this is a guy who had to go to the independent baseball route for a stretch before he got his chance with St. Louis. So he is extremely grateful for the opportunity that he has. And he, and, and I think the best thing we talk about guys who don't care that all they want to do is win, um, you know, from a pitching staff side, he also is the same way in terms of, I don't care if I'm in the starting lineup every day. I just want to help my team. Um, and that's, that's not him blowing smoke. I got the same vibe from everyone I spoke to in St. Louis about that. And when you consider they did lose some important veterans, having a guy like that who will come off the bench, who will start when needed, who can really swing the bat and has great confidence level, I think is really going to be mean, meaningful to this team from that regard too. No doubt. And they gave up a really great left-handed pitching prospect that they liked a lot in Matt Libitor, but also as part of that deal, um, tell us about Randy Orozarena. I mean, what, uh, what, what, how can he help the Rays? Um, well, I think because of the Margot trade, you know, I don't know that he starts with the Rays initially. I mean, there's a sure. good chance that he begins the year in AAA Durham. But, I mean, here's a guy who had, like, close to 1,000 OPS between double and AAA last year and got a brief cup of coffee in the big leagues. And he's also just 25 years of age, so or 24, 25 years of age. So I think the Rays believe that um, a Rosarena who is uh, got, you know, a really quick bat, um, you know, has very good foot speed, probably more of a corner outfielder, but can play all three outfield positions, gives them maybe a long range potential starter in the outfield. Um, I would think with the chance to be a very, very good regular. And, and I think he probably would keep peace to our trade. Um, and I think the Rays felt they could make a deal like this one. I think they probably liked Arazarena a, a lot more than, let's say, the rest, a lot of, uh, you know, of the, the, the prospect rankings people did in baseball. They right. saw him much higher in terms of his ceiling. And at the same time, I think they felt they had enough young pitching depth down in the lower minors. Because remember, Libertor is still a high school kid who hadn't played above Bowling Green that they felt they could afford to make a deal like this. Absolutely. And, you know, what's neat about the Rays, uh, and I, I, Mark Topkin wrote about this a couple days ago, what do you have, like uh, six different countries represented in that clubhouse? And it's it's a welcoming clubhouse, and you've got uh, several sets of interpreters that, uh, that that help out with that as well. But um, you bring over uh, Yoshi uh, Susugo, and, and uh, this guy was, uh, as Kevin Cash has said, he was a star. Uh, he's a major mm-hmm. league player now. He hasn't hasn't played in the major league. So, what's going to be his his transition? And and just what have you observed of of him um, coming to the big leagues? One, I think that you know the Rays are going to do everything they can to make his transition as quick and as seamless as possible. 
Um, you know, he has a reputation for being a leader in the clubhouse in Japan. Obviously, it's a little more difficult here because of the language barrier. But um, I'm told, you know, or, or, and Mark wrote about this, too, that he had a really good reputation to the Spanish speaking with the Spanish speaking players in Japan. And mm-hmm. Willie Adamas said they already he's, he's already shared some slang terms with with Willie. And he said he's going to fit in well here. Um, you know, I think obviously one of the big reasons the Rays acquired him is because of what he can do offensively. You know, right. here's a guy who, um, you know, can has hit what at least 28 homers each of the last four seasons in Japan. How that translates is hard to say, but the Rays really believe that he's got the bat speed um, uh, and the ability to adjust the play to be a very successful hitter in the big leagues um, and hit somewhere in the middle of the lineup. Anywhere, I don't know whether it's two through six, he's going to hit fifth in the first couple exhibition uh, games that he plays on Sunday and Monday. Um, and I think he'll probably start playing in left field to get him comfortable there. And he continues to take ground balls at third base. And I think you're going to see him there as well. Um, but I think the most important thing is just make him feel comfortable in the clubhouse, allow him to adjust to, to, to pitching in the United States. And he's going to get as many at bats as Kevin Cassett, as many as he needs. So whether that's 45, 50, whether it's 60 or more, you can do a lot on the backfields and spring training. And, you know, I think whatever makes him feel like he's ready to go uh, come, what, March 26th. It is really kind of neat, though, to see the, the way, and, and I guess it's a tribute to the guys and, and, and the people that the organization has brought, that, but that they have managed to integrate so many different cultures into into what is really a fun a fun atmosphere, right? And winning is fun, so it helps when you, when you uh, yes. win 96 games. You're totally right. I mean, you're talking Japan, Korea, Venezuela, Dominican Republic, uh, Colombia. Uh, Lucius Fox is from the Bahamas. Um, mm. You know, it's it is certainly the the true you know United States melting pot um, mm-hmm. in that clubhouse. And and I think that you know, at least from a personal standpoint, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to spend a week in Korea last uh, last year with Premier Twelve, which was one of the Olympic qualifying events. And just knowing um, at that point for me, you know, obviously I had people around me who, who spoke English, um, but I had a, I, I think it gave me just a greater appreciation of being in a foreign country and not knowing the language or the culture and how do I adapt and, you know, it's, you know, how, how do I adjust? Um, you know, it gave me a greater appreciation for what players, especially I think G-Man and, and Yoshi are, are, you know, deal with on a regular basis. G-Man's been here for a while, but, you know, just what, what was it like when he first came over here? I mean, it can be very, very daunting, um, but this is a guy who spent a month each of the last handful of years in the United States training because he wanted to play Major League Baseball. And um, the fact that he was working out with Nolan Arenado on his, you know, because he wanted to come here, you know, I think probably speaks to his desire. And now it's just a matter of getting himself comfortable in producing. No doubt about it. Hey, Neil, uh, before we let you go, look, there's no secret, at least in baseball, how good this Rays organization is. And the proof of that is that mm-hmm. every year somebody is hiring someone off the bench as a manager or out of the front office as a general manager. Um, you're always happy for guys to get opportunities, right? I mean, that's that's the the big thing, and, and you're happy for them. Uh, but but uh, it's pretty obvious that that these other clubs want what the Rays have, right? I, I think in a lot of ways. I mean, um, but I also think that you know, knowing what the Rays have done. I mean, since you know, in 2008, I think they had like 80 some employees 
in their baseball operations staff. And it's probably just a little more than triple that now, 12 years later. So I think what they've done is just similar to the way they've built the organization on the field where they have a lot of depth. Um, they also have a lot of depth off the field, too. Um, mm-hmm. And as important as I think High and Bloom and James Click were to the development of this franchise, and, you know, I wish them a lot of success other than the games, the 19 that Heim's Red Sox will play against the Rays and the, the games in April that, you know, the Astros will play against um, Tampa Bay. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of bright minds in that front office that um, I think, you know, over time fans will get to know or maybe some of them they won't know. Um, it's not like James was a James was probably not a household name to a lot of people, um, at least in the, you know, the nationally in the baseball circles when he got the Astros job. So I, I think, you know, there are a lot of other guys who will get the chance to develop. And I think the good thing in this case is your top executive is still here in Eric Neander. So you've got, you know, the kind the guy who um, has helped, you know, teach, nurture, help guys grow is still doing that. And I think that that model um, that the Rays have had helps. And I think the other thing is, you know, we talked about all the, the movement that the roster has had over the past year, which actually was less than the previous couple. But I think the big thing is that the players have been able to adapt to change. And I think the front office has also been able to adapt to change. And I think while there are a lot of people who want guys in the Rays organization, which is great, um, I, I think the ability to adapt to change is kind of a piece of uh, really almost the Rays way, so to speak. And it's one of the reasons that they've been so successful the last, what, 12, 13 years. All right, no discussion with the Rays, and especially with Neil Salons, would be complete unless you ask. I ask you about the number one prospect in baseball, Wander Franco, <laughs> uh, who who is getting over ever so close uh, as Rays fans wait for him to 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 make that major league uh, uh, debut and, and of course and be uh, an everyday player. Maybe not quite there yet, but uh, what what are what what sort of is the timetable if there were an, an ideal one for him? Well, I mean, if you're looking at what is the the best case scenario, um, you know, I don't think it's out of the question to see him with the Rays at some time this year uh, right. because he is that talented. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Wander is is um, undeniably as talented as any player the franchise has ever had, um, you know, especially if you look at what he did at the age of, what, 18 years of age. Sure. I would guess that he'll start the year in A Montgomery, and then mm-hmm. a lot of it is going to depend on him. Um, you know, how quickly does he develop as a base runner in terms of his defense, in terms of his ability to adjust to older and more mature pitching, um, and also the way he handles things, um, you know, because you forget sometimes with how talented he is with the bat that he still is going to be, what, 19 years of age during the course or will turn 19 during wow. the course of this spring or this season. And, you know, I think that that is... You know, B.J. Upton, I remember, debuted at, what, 19 years of age way back when in 2004. And so, you know, how he um, deals with all that, because it is a lot to take in, um, you know, will will determine whether he's here this year or whether it's next year. But I think whenever he comes to the Rays, he's going to be here for good. And I think the Rays believe, you know, he's got the ability to be not just a really good player for the Rays, but an elite-level player. Neil, we know you have, the, uh, of course, the This Week in uh, Rays Baseball podcast and then uh, the Sunday uh, countdown to opening day. 
Um, this weekend, some pretty good guests, right? Tell us about it. Yeah, Charlie Morton is going to be on the program. Um, you know, I think obviously he was such an important piece of last year. Career high in innings pitched, game started. His leadership was off the charts, um, and he's such a quality individual. You know, putting that year in perspective, and then Kyle Snyder, who has kind of helped engineer all of this and has been such a vital part um, of you know of helping. You know, people forget, almost forget that you know it, he replaced Jim Hickey a couple of years ago, and everyone was going, "How are they going to be able to make up for the loss of Jim <laughs> Hickey?" And I think you know it, that's where you you know you got to, hey, how do they make up for this guy, that guy? I mean, yeah. people forget that even last year, Rocco Baldelli and Charlie Montoya went to other teams to manage them. And this team won more games than they did the year before. And that's why I think they're so adaptable to change. So certainly that's going to be part of the part of the theme on the show. And if they don't get to hear the show on, on our network or on our flagship, um, it will be on Apple Podcasts. And they can check out our Rays Radio Twitter handle, too. It'll have links there as well. It's a must listen if you're a Rays fan. Let me tell you, Neil Solans does a terrific job as the pre and post game host. Of course, you hear him with David Andy as well on the broadcast. Thanks, Neil. We appreciate it so much. You got it anytime. Thanks again for having me on, Rick. And of course, Neil will be down there in Fort Myers as the Rays open their spring training schedule on Saturday against the Boston Red Sox, and then it's home in Port Charlotte Sunday against the New York Yankees. The Lightning, meanwhile, they conclude their West Coast trip in Arizona on Saturday night. And get ready for this, folks. We got football at Raymond James Stadium. The XFL Tampa Bay Vipers looking for their first win will make their home debut on uh, Saturday at 2 o'clock against the Houston Roughnecks. So something to look forward to there. Busy weekend. We'll talk about all of it on Monday. For Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. 